0: Welcome to Inside the Hive. You're here with Joe Hagan and Emily Jane Fox, not coming from Cancun. Weirdly. But uh, but if we were, we might see Ted Cruz poolside.
1: Which is a vision I'm sure all of us were looking for. You know, we have a jam-packed show today. We have not one, but two A++ guests. I'm so excited. Before we get to our guests who are like the most topical people I could imagine today. And some of that was planned and some of that was not. Joe, you had like a real rabbit out of a hat moment. Do you want to explain? You know,
0: here's what we have today. We have a double feature. You've arrived for a double feature. You've got Congressman Joe Neguse, the uh, rising Democratic star and impeachment manager that you saw last week giving closing arguments for the attempted impeachment of Donald Trump. And we also have, talking about the uh, disaster in Texas, Beto O'Rourke, another Democratic star who's uh, who's still looking for his place in the firmament, but no doubt will. Um, and together, we're going to be able to bring you what is happening this week. This the moment. state of uh, our nation. We're betwixt and between with, uh, you know, the former president and his influence on the world. And it would be hard to come up with a scenario uh, more demonstrative of the failures of the Republican Party than what's going on in Texas.
1: Well, speaking of failures and Texas, because I know we're going to talk about the actual issues, but just when we're recording this, Ted Cruz, who has, has been largely silent since Uh, It was first reported on the internet that he was hopping, potentially hopping a flight to Cancun in the midst of what has to be the worst few days in Texan history, or at least up there. And it was so ridiculous that I went to sleep last night, California time, knowing that by the time I woke up this morning to record our very early interview this morning, that it would have been disproven that this this photo was going to prove to be a deep fake or doctored in some way, or people were going to find out that Ted Cruz had a doppelganger. To my surprise, my my cynicism wasn't cynical enough, and it was in fact Ted Cruz. So that's surprise one of the day. Surprise two was the statement that he released after all these hours of silence. And and if you're a crisis manager, I think the thing that you don't want to happen is having dead air and having people be able to fill in the story and fill in those blanks. And so by the time he released the statement, everyone had sort of come to a conclusion that he was a real piece of shit. And that's the only way I can describe what he is. And his statement was that his children had asked him to go to Cancun and he didn't want to be a bad father. And so he obliged. And it was very carefully worded to say that they went yesterday to Cancun or went on Wednesday to Cancun and that he flew back the day later. It did not say that all along he was planning to fly back one day later. And in fact, photos that have surfaced from his return trip to the Cancun airport show that he was- Big bag of luggage. It was a very large suitcase for overnight. I'm an overpacker and that feels like- Even a bigger bag. To be honest, it would have been insane for him to go for one night. Obviously, he was not planning all along to go for one night. That's an insane thing to do. It's not like his children just needed an airline chaperone. It is wild of all the wild things, and there are many in this story. It is wild to blame your children for a huge political fuck up. I've never seen that before in scandal management.
0: Yeah, a friend of mine, Jody Rosen, who's a a, a writer, a freelance writer, he he tweeted out uh, his version of Cruz's statement. It's my daughter's fault. Also, I'm Father of the Year. Really? It, it really it really really kind of underlined and italicized your original opinion that he's a piece of shit.
1: It's just it's also crazy. Like your kids specifically said, their school was canceled because there's this. Tremendous storm in Texas. There's no power. There's, there's unsafe driving conditions. People don't have hot meals. They don't have hot water. They don't have safe drinking water. It's, it's a very dangerous situation. And so your kids have an unplanned vacation and they're like, we got to go to a resort in Mexico, dad. Like that's, that's the only way you can be a good father is if you take us on an unplanned vacation to, to Cancun right now. It's a really wild... Thing and and also, it's crazy to blame your children and also make your children look like spoiled yeah. <laughs> entitled brats. H- it's horrible. It's
0: uh, it's yeah. There's a lot there, and uh, you know, I was thinking, uh, you know, before he came out with that statement, there were a couple of um, comments out there that I saw that were like you know, that famous photo or infamous photo of him with his luggage at the airport. Somebody should have cropped out the daughter. It's not fair to bring her into it, or mm. some of these comments. Well, flash forward, Ted Cruz says, not only is it fair, it's necessary to bring my daughter you know, into
1: it. especially because there was such a stink made about how President Trump, who he was one time, uh, who was one time a foe of Ted Cruz, how he brought his wife into the political conversation and how that was such a big thing. And and of course, it was wrong to have done, and then he ended up sucking up to President Trump anyway. But for someone who put up such objection to his wife being dragged into politics, to then drag your own children into it is really, it's so rich. Honestly, I thought there was a bottom until this happened, and now I feel like there is, there is no floor here.
0: And that is the question, the sentiment that I try to talk about with both Joe Neguse and Beto O'Rourke today, you know, after an impeachment in which the only lesson learned was that Trump still controls the party after this devastating, you know, disaster in Texas, which Beto O'Rourke is going to tell you all about in a few moments. Is there any consequence to the Republican Party, will they ever pay a price for their failures, for you know, for a coup, for failing to protect citizens in Texas by everything they've done, like the failure of the privatization of the grid and, and everything that we're going to be talking about? Will they ever pay a price? I don't know, but I asked that question to both Congressman DeGoose and Beto O'Rourke, and today you're going to get to hear what they have to say about it.
1: It was, I was only in one of those interviews, but I will say that that interview was so fascinating. I can't wait to hear the other one. And let's just let people listen.
0: Let's jump in. Congressman Joe Nagus, welcome to Inside the Hive. We're so delighted to have you here. Emily Jane Fox and myself have been looking forward to this uh, ever since we saw you. On the Senate floor last Saturday, which now seems almost like a lifetime ago in news cycle terms, but is destined to be with us for a long time. The the events of that day, your closing remarks were so incisive and frankly, really moving. And uh, I wanted to quote from something you said that Saturday. You were sort of citing the historic events that have happened on the floor in the past on the Senate floor, emancipation and civil rights legislation, you know, huge you know, sort of bringing in the hallowed historic decisions that were made there. He said, I believe this body can rise to the occasion once again today by convicting President Trump and defending our republic. And the stakes could not be higher. I played that for my 13-year-old daughter last night to hold the whole speech. And she was like, how could they not, you know, how could they not convict? And uh, that's the question we all asked ourselves. And we kind of know the political reasons. But now that it's happened— you put so much incredible work into it, no I want to ask you about that. But what what do you think this impeachment trial achieved?
2: Well, uh, first, it's good to be with you, uh, Joe and, and Emily, um, long time listener. So appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. Uh, look, I, you know, the, the statement that you quoted uh, from my closing remarks was born from a legitimate hope and belief that we might be able to convince 67 senators to uh, vote their conscience and, and ultimately uh, vote to convict. And uh, that, that was a, a hope that uh, me and every one of my colleagues, my fellow managers, all uh, held very deeply. And we had worked hard over the course of uh, many weeks preparing our case with uh, the expectation that we would do everything we could uh, to make the persuasive case to the United States Senate and, and hopefully convince them, as I said, uh, to do the right thing and to rise above uh, uh, you know, party politics, uh, as the Senate has done on so many other occasions throughout the course of our history. Uh, so, obviously, we were disappointed uh, that we were unable to secure uh, the sufficient number of votes to ultimately secure a conviction, although, of course, as you know, uh, that, uh, that constitutional standard has never been met in the history of our country. No president has been convicted, and this ultimately culminated the trial in the most bipartisan impeachment vote in the history of our republic. Uh, in four presidential impeachments, uh, this was the highest number of senators who had ultimately voted to convict, and certainly the most bipartisan uh, uh, vote, as I, as I mentioned. And so, as I think about what the trial achieved, what the process achieved, I, I'd say first, it was a vindication of our Constitution in the sense that the House did its duty, uh, did its job, as it's obligated to do under Article One, and proceeded with doing everything that it could to defend uh, the Constitution. Uh, I do think that that vote, while again, not a a sufficient number, the two-thirds requisite for a conviction, nonetheless was a vindication of both our constitution and ultimately the case that we presented. Uh, It's fairly clear when you read through the statements of some of those senators who voted to acquit on uh, jurisdictional grounds, which I'm sure we'll talk about, uh, but nonetheless conceded that uh, the president was responsible for the events of uh, January 6th. It was clear that a a, a large number of senators, far greater than those who voted to convict, believed that we had met our burden, that we had proven our case. And uh, I think that was important uh, for the historical record uh, and for setting a future precedent that other presidents uh, will understand that to the extent that they engage in the type of egregious conduct that President Trump engaged in. That uh, there are consequences, and uh, that the House will move swiftly to hold uh, him or her accountable, uh, and that at least a, uh, a significant majority of the United States Senate will be prepared to do the same.
1: Congressman, can I ask you a, a process question here? It's a little less lofty than than the the beautiful things you just said about our democracy and the Constitution, but as you mentioned, this has only been done four times before. And, or four times, and this is not something that many people have prepared for. So I'm wondering if you could just walk us through the hard work that you put in on a pretty short timetable to prepare yourself for giving the kinds of uh, speeches that you made on that floor and for mounting the kind of case that you guys very clearly mounted.
2: Well, I practiced law, uh, like many uh, others, before I came to the United States Congress. And so uh, I Prepared for the case uh, in the same way that I used to prepare for cases as a litigator and as a lawyer. Um, You know, we, myself and my fellow eight managers, of course, under the leadership of our incredible uh, captain, uh, lead manager, and my good friend Jamie Raskin, uh, spent a lot of time on Zooms, uh, you know, phone calls. Uh, discussing legal strategy, discussing the presentation of the evidence, various questions uh, as to how to proceed in, in that regard. Um, spent a lot of time preparing. And then, of course, during the course of the trial in particular, uh, you know, revising and re-editing scripts uh, in terms of the jurisdictional argument, for example, that uh, I was responsible for making uh, with uh, Congressman Raskin and Congressman Cicilline on the very first day of the trial. And then, of course, as I said, the presentation of the evidence. There were multiple rehearsals uh, with the managers, uh, both again virtual and also in person in Washington, uh, so that you know, kind of, it gives you a general sense as to the the volume of work. Of course, I credit the incredible attorneys uh, who worked on our behalf, as well as the staff who put in very long hours day after day over the course of that you know several week period, helping prepare the case. Um, I also spent a great deal of time, in particular. Uh, because of the jurisdictional argument that, uh, uh, you know, that we had to contend with at the outset of the trial with studying the historical records of uh, prior impeachments, Uh, the uh, 1876 impeachment of Secretary of War William Belknap, uh, of course, the prior presidential impeachments such as the impeachment of Andrew Johnson in 1868, which, of course, uh, we had uh, uh, several of us who serve on the Judiciary Committee, myself included, had studied previously during the last impeachment uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, so I spent a lot of time reading through secondary sources, the relevant law review articles and, um, and the various arguments made by constitutional scholars on both sides of that debate so that, uh, you know, we could uh, uh, and I could feel confident in uh, the arguments that uh, that we were making. So, yeah, uh, prepared for it, as I'm sure any legions of your listeners who are attorneys prepare for their cases, uh, you know, no, no, no different than that, perhaps a trial with a little bit more attention than others. But nonetheless, uh, the preparation is largely the same.
1: Just, just slightly more of a spotlight.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, uh, definitely. You know, a lot of us watching last Saturday were, you know, it was like um, out of left field, there was this whole attempt or discussion of witnesses. And a lot of us were extremely disappointed not to see witnesses happen. How about you?
2: It's a fair question. It's a question I've gotten a lot uh, from, uh, well, from just about everybody, <laughs> including my, my own family, asking <laughs> about um, that particular question, right? And and obviously, folks who are following it very closely. Uh, I want to take a step back. I mean, I, I one, I think lead manager Raskin made this point early on. I, I believe that our presentation of the case was overwhelming, that the evidence was significant, comprehensive, and ultimately, I think that uh, the fact that the Senate reached this, a majority of the Senate rather reached the same conclusion we did uh, in terms of you know, finding that the president was guilty of the constitutional offense of which he was charged speaks to that. And I think that lead manager Raskin is also right in his, uh, his statement that whether it was five witnesses or 5,000 witnesses, uh, it would not have made a difference with respect to the particular outcome. That is to say, the, even the senators who, or some of the senators rather, who voted to acquit, nonetheless uh, have conceded that the, the president engaged in the conduct that uh, we alleged he engaged in, right? And you see that from the minority leader statement, for example, that largely emulated, the Senate minority leader, I should say, uh, that emulated much of our theory of the case, that the president was practically yeah. and morally responsible for the events of the day. So I, I say that just with a preface. Now, with respect to this particular issue, um, the organizing resolution uh, that governs this particular trial was largely modeled after the organizing resolution for the impeachment of uh, President Clinton in 1999. Uh, and that resolution was structured so that the witness question would not be reached until after the presentation of evidence by the prosecution and the ultimately the, you know, the arguments by the defense, right? So that was Saturday morning and that was the time at which it would be appropriate for uh, either side to weigh in as to whether or not they wanted to proceed with witnesses. We believed that we had made a sufficient case uh, and that we had met our burden. But the night before, uh, Friday night, we learned uh, the full extent of a statement by uh, one of our colleagues, Congresswoman Herrera Butler, uh, who uh, you know bravely and courageously voted in favor of, of the impeachment article uh, in the House several weeks prior to that. The statement that she attributed to uh, Minority Leader McCarthy, uh, in terms of the conversation that he allegedly had with the, the president, went directly to the president's state of mind and was probative evidence that we thought the United States Senate needed to hear. So- a decision was made that morning to proceed with a motion for one witness, which was Congresswoman Herrera Butler, not multiple witnesses. Um, and I know there was some confusion, I think, uh, you know, in the public square on that issue. But ultimately, that was the the, the thrust of the request. Uh, we made that request. And as you all know, uh, the Senate took that motion up. It became clear after that, uh, that one, the president's counsel would concede Uh, and agree a a stipulation that would allow for her statement to be entered into the record, which was incredibly important because it meant that the United States Senate could consider that as part of its deliberations. You all will recall the attacks that the President's Council was making regarding the evidentiary record. So the fact that they conceded that point was no small feat. And ultimately, the American people would have an opportunity to hear the full extent of that statement. And it would largely, in our view, Um, It mirror what Congresswoman Herrera-Butler would have testified to in a video deposition. And so as a result, it really answered that particular issue that we were, uh, that that lead manager Raskin was pushing on. I will also say this, however, because I know there was interest in hearing from other witnesses, right? Uh, And there are various names that have been speculated about in the media on that front. It was clear to us, uh, and based on you know, my understanding of, of conversations that were had, that uh, you know, witnesses we potentially would want to have come in and testify would not be necessarily willing to do so on a voluntary basis, which would mean uh, that we'd have to proceed with subpoenas of those witnesses. And if those witnesses chose to litigate the propriety of those subpoenas, we could very well end up in litigation for weeks, months. Years And I don't say that lightly because as a member of the Judiciary Committee, I had a front row seat to the president's obstruction years ago when, for example, he refused uh, to uh, enable uh, Don McGahn, his former White House counsel, to testify before our committee. We are still litigating that subpoena today, mm. years later. And so given the balancing of the equities we had to do in light of the potential for extended uh, litigation, in light of the fact that we got... This statement into the record that we thought was uh, was compelling, and in light of the over- overwhelming evidentiary record, that's where we landed. And I was comfortable with that decision. I thought it was uh, the right one, and I, I, I trusted lead manager Raskin's uh, uh, you know judgment on that point.
1: and a member of the Judiciary Committee, I'm wondering what you thought about the president's attorneys and, and the case that they mounted.
2: Uh, you know, I'll, I'll let the American people judge their case and uh, the, uh, the arguments that they made. Uh, at the end of the day, I think that, again, as I review the, the statements made by people like uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and others, it's clear to me that they came to the conclusion that our theory of the case was accurate. And uh, I think that the evidence uh, that we presented connected with the the Senate and ultimately the American people in a very visceral way. Um, I I will say this: I think the jurisdictional argument. uh, You know, one of my disappointments as a lawyer uh, was the fact that so many senators who voted to acquit did so on the basis of a jurisdictional argument that had already been adjudicated on the very first day of the trial. Uh, You know, we had worked very hard in briefing the jurisdictional issues, and then, of course, in arguing those issues in front of the United States Senate. As as I said, we spent the bulk of the first day of the trial on this particular issue. For a body that purports to rely so heavily on precedent, to both ignore its own prior precedent, which I had explained in uh, perhaps painstaking detail in terms of you know uh, cases from the the 19th uh, 18th century and so forth um, and then um, perhaps even more importantly to ignore its own precedent that is to say the precedent of this case the law of the case that had been reached once a bipartisan majority of the United States Senate uh, on Tuesday voted to hear this case for them to just ignore that and disregard that and to essentially revisit that same issue at the conclusion of the trial i thought was um was a mistake uh, well and, and
0: you, congressman can i can i just say that this gets to the heart of the matter impeachment people say and it is known is a political process at the end of the day these guys voted on politics and this is the 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 heart of the question here biden has you know as you know campaigned on this idea of unity we can work with republicans let's get back to some kind of level of normalcy and comedy between the parties and so forth. But we know the facts, the hard, cold facts, right? 139 House Republicans voted against certifying this election. They voted against convicting. And now Trump's going to attack McConnell and try to destroy him and and have the whole party be enthralled to him. So my question to you is, is like, doesn't this whole thing, the outcome of this impeachment, isn't it a sign that Democrats like yourself and those in the Senate and elsewhere have to just forget this unity idea. <laughs> Take the gloves off and act like uh, the majority power and get things done without Republicans. I mean, how do, what is the lesson that we can draw from this politically?
2: I'd say a couple things, Joe, um, because I know that, that the feelings that you just expressed are certainly shared by many Americans. Uh, I, I can only tell you what I feel in my heart. While I was disappointed by the outcome in terms of some of the senators not, uh, in, in my view, rising above party politics as I had hoped they would, uh, as I had spoken about in my closing remarks. I must tell you that I draw inspiration and optimism from the seven Republican senators who did vote to convict and who did so despite the incredibly negative political consequences that they will face. I had an opportunity to talk to one of those senators recently, and without getting into the details of that conversation, I will just simply say that I remain so awe-inspired by their patriotism and by their courage. It It is not a small feat. There's a reason why, as I said, that this impeachment was the most bipartisan impeachment in the history of our republic. Uh, for you know for hundreds of years uh, during these you know types of proceedings generally speaking uh, members of you know one party would be disinclined to hold uh, the president accountable if they were of the same party that was not the case in this instance senators from very republican states chose country over party and so uh, you know while i recognize obviously um, you know that there are significant obstacles as you said because of Um, you know, the the actions of of some, I just can't have to tell you what's in my heart, which is I'm filled with a sense of gratitude to those seven senators. And and my hope is that perhaps uh, that, uh, you know, more will follow their example in the weeks and months ahead. Um, You know, I'll tell you one of the defining moments of the trial for us, for when I say us, uh, for the managers, um, after the jurisdictional arguments that day, one senator switched his vote and voted to ultimately hear the case, even though that senator had voted just two weeks before uh, to dismiss the case on jurisdictional grounds, and we had talked internally about the need to convince—and and, and literally, this is a you know a line that you know Jamie, uh, excuse me, uh, Re- Representative Raskin and I had sort of talked about with each other—that we just needed one, we just needed one senator to show the country and the world that they were listening, that they were truly listening to the arguments in an impartial way. And that they were going to render a judgment based on the facts, and when that senator switched their vote and, and said publicly that they had listened to the arguments made by myself and Mr. Cicilline, and Mr. Raskin, and by the defense, and they had, you know, uh, concurred in our view, I, I have to tell you that was a watershed moment for us because it signaled that um, that this was, you know, in fact, uh, you know, uh, the, the forum that we thought it it should be and could be. Now again. I you know I understand I take the point that uh, folks will continue to point to the final outcome as evidence that my rosier view of uh, of, of what we can accomplish together is uh, you know as I sit on the Senate floor maybe a bit naive because of my age but um, you know when you're the son of African refugees who came to this country with very little and have given have been given every freedom and opportunity to be able to you know live the American dream and you are one generation removed serving in the United States Congress, it's hard not to believe that anything in America is possible and that, yes, perhaps not everybody rose to the occasion last Saturday, but a few people did, and we should take great pride in that. Yeah.
1: Congressman, we know you have to go. You have very important things to do today. You have committee meetings. You have a country to serve, constituents to serve. You just mentioned uh, your age and your optimism and your rosy view, and we would be remiss not to ask you before you dash what is your future in this party? You are undoubtedly a rising star. I think that uh, anyone in Washington knew that before the events of the last two weeks, but certainly a much larger audience believes that now you are already in a leadership position. It seems like you were poised to hang on to that or continue to climb up the ranks. What do you want for yourself in Washington in the coming years?
2: I, I say this in all in all candor. I really enjoy the job that I'm doing now. I, I, I you know serving my district, my community. Uh, I've lived in Colorado since I was six years old. Um, I've never lived anywhere else, and I love my state. And I love being able to represent the communities that I uh, have, have grown up in. In the United States Congress, and to continue to do that work, and so as people ask me about my future, you know, I, I tell them that I'd like to be able to continue having the opportunity to serve uh, in that capacity. Uh, my wife and I have a, a two and a half year old daughter, and so you know, we are we are enjoying uh, raising her in this wonderful community, and, uh, and and that's that's really where our energies are are focused. I appreciate all the the, the kind words, uh, you know, but I, I must say that I think as I look back on my very short time in Congress. Uh, what's remarkable to me is that there are there's a, a whole class of new generational leaders coming up in the United States Congress. Um, some of them the country is aware of, some of them the country may not be aware of yet, but they will be soon. People like Colin Allred, who's a, you know my 36 year old former NFL linebacker who's represents uh, the state of Texas in the Congress, good friend of mine. Max Rose, some of you are from, I'm sure familiar with, who's one of my closest friends, who unfortunately is no longer in the Congress, but was is a great guy from Staten Island, to, uh, you know 32 years old who uh, flipped a seat back in 2018. Obviously, you know Representative Ocasio Cortez. Um, there's a long list of young. People in the House of Representatives who I think are, um, you know, kind of the new vanguard, right, as they're uh, coming up and, and talking about issues that resonate with young people uh, across our country, and I'm hopeful that I can, you know, be uh, be a part of that as well and uh, continue to lend my voice to the extent people uh, believe that uh, that you know I have something to offer. Yeah,
0: um, Congressman, thank you for coming on Inside the Hive this week know you're a busy man, and this is a busy time, and I really uh, appreciate your optimism. And uh, certainly, it's in short supply nowadays, so thank you for, for throwing a little in for us. Um, and we hope to have you back on the show up the road.
2: I would love to, Joe. And I, I will say I draw optimism from the story you shared, the fact that you would uh, think to share some of the remarks from that trial with your 13-year-old daughter. That gives me a lot of optimism for the future of our country, so thank oh, you for God. having me.
0: Thank you for um, coming on Inside the Hive. I just want to read you this headline that I just read. Beto Rourke is organizing wellness checks for seniors during Texas blackouts. Ted Cruz is in Cancun. Quite a contrast. What did you think when you
3: saw that news hit the wires? You know, just for me, reinforces how good the people of Texas are. Not necessarily that the folks in office and the people in power, but but the people of Texas. We had 120 folks join us last night for this um, essentially statewide welfare check-in where we were calling senior citizens across the state, make sure they have electricity, make sure they have water, make sure they have food. And for those who don't, to connect them with help that they need. For example, we talked to this um, elderly gentleman in Killeen, Texas, which is where Fort Hood is. And um, hadn't eaten in two days, um, didn't know where to get help. Uh, we connected him with the Skyline Baptist Church in Colleen, which is the local warming center. They provided transportation, got him to a hot meal. It, and, and then just the folks that you connect with who just need to know that you know that they're alive, you know, like they've been isolated in a cold, dark home where if if they have any power, they use it to boil the water because 7 million Texans are under a boil water notice. For them to get a phone call from another human being is pretty fucking powerful and yeah. um, and is powerful both for the person who receives the call and a hope for the, the volunteers who are doing this work in Texas. And Joe, we, we had people making phone calls to senior citizens who are making the calls from their cars because there was no electricity or power or heat in their homes. <laughs> Um, and uh, anyhow, so yeah, I mean the, the Ted Cruz thing, um, as they say, you know, true to form, but I don't know how much we were expecting from him to begin with the, the people of Texas have really stepped up and, and make me really proud.
0: Well, and you have too. And I, my first thought was like, you may not have beat Ted Cruz in the Senate race, but now you're doing his
3: job. Well, w- there are a lot of people in Texas who, who are, who are trying to, to do that job and, and to help out. And you've got folks in government. You know, Ted Cruz, a great example, who, who don't believe in government or don't believe in our form of government, You know, tried to overturn a, a lawfully, legitimately democratically decided election, You know, conspired with seditionists, um, was very responsible for those who were killed in, in the insurrection and the coup attempt on the 6th of January. That, that guy wants nothing to do with government or at least our form of it. And then you've got Greg Abbott. Who, along with other extremist right wing, right wing Republicans, just don't believe that government is there to do the things that probably you and I and many of your listeners understand government to exist for. Like in the the midst of the worst storm in Texas history, bar none, that has already killed, you know, a couple dozen of our fellow Texans who've died of carbon monoxide poisoning, who've died of exposure, who've died as their homes burned down as they try to keep themselves warm. Um, is is just not there. Um, and from the deregulated electricity market that you have in Texas, um, yeah. where there was no mandate or incentive to provide extra capacity for emergencies like these or to weatherize um, your your energy supplies, whether it's you know coal-fired plants or gas-fired plants or wind turbines or, or solar, we, we just weren't prepared because those in power in our government right now don't think that government should play that role in trying to avert a catastrophe like the one that we're experiencing. And then the, the overarching uh, issue of climate change, which has produced these extreme weather events, whether it was Hurricane Harvey which dump more rain in a 24 hour period than has ever been dumped in North America in in recorded history uh, or the severe droughts that we see in North Texas in the Panhandle or this winter storm, which is the worst storm bar none that we've ever had in the state of Texas. This stuff is only gonna become more frequent, more unpredictable, more severe, more deadly, uh, especially if we do not change course. And the folks in charge in Texas just literally do not believe the science um, or the truth behind climate change and our contributions to it. So um, that's the consequence. That's the cost that we bear right now.
0: You know, it's like an X-ray of the failures of the entire ideology (laughs) in, in the state of Texas.
3: That's right. You don't have to look further than this storm. But if you were to, you would encounter an incredibly botched rollout uh, for the COVID vaccine in Texas, where they basically said to each one of the 254 counties, you're on your own. Uh, Good luck trying to find the people who who need to get vaccinated. Or prior to that, the government's response or lack thereof to the pandemic and uh, ignoring the, the public health and the scientific guidance that would have saved tens of thousands of lives. And as you know, those who lost their lives were disproportionately in communities of color, Native American communities, communities along the border. El Paso, my hometown, was the deadliest city for a while, bar none. Now it's Laredo, Texas. Prior to that, it was McAllen. Yeah, that, that that's what's happening right now. And you're right. Th- this, unfortunately, tells you what happens when you have people in government who don't believe in government. Right. I got to say that I just
0: interviewed Colorado uh, Congressman Joe Neguse, who was so powerful during the impeachment hearing last week, really amazing guy and really a a bright star in in the Democratic Party firmament, obviously. But the same thing I asked him, I'll ask you a version of it anyway, which is that once again, uh, this Republican Party did not bring uh, a check or a balance on on its own worst impulses, and it seems like the base of that party will always forgive them. But what's happening in Texas right now seems genuinely unforgivable and Ted Cruz's behavior seems genuinely unforgivable. I mean, do you think that there's any Rubicon that these guys can cross that where the, that where the voters will call them to account for not managing or not governing?
3: Yeah, I, it's a great question. Um, I don't know that any of us know, know the answer um, because as your question implies, due to the fact that we live in a democracy and, and this is government of, by, and for the people, however imperfectly and however many people are kept out of, of government in states like Texas that make it so hard to register and and to vote in the first place, um, the folks who are in power are in power because people voted for them. And they voted for them in many instances despite their absolute and abject failure in, in their, their most essential responsibility, in this case, saving and protecting the lives of the people who are in your trust and your care and who you were elected to, to serve and, and represent, or in Ted Cruz's case, um, to, to traffic in, in the kind of lies and sedition and conspiracy that have produced this constitutional and democratic small d crisis that we have in our country right now. But thank God for people like Joe Neguse, who I did not know anything about before I listened to him, um, extraordinary remarks in the House manager's case against Donald Trump. He's he's an all time American hero, right along with Jamie Raskin and Stacey Plaskett and Joaquin Castro and others who helped to make that case. But um, he's somebody who gives me some some hope. And and maybe even some confidence that we're going to find our way through it. I I think when you have such a powerful contrast or alternative to Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley in someone like Joe Joe Naguse, you know, it's hard not to be drawn to him. And as you said, perhaps this total failure in leadership that you're seeing in Texas that has left so many dead, so many without water, so many without food. Um, remember supermarkets are, are just barren right now. And that's, if you can get into them when you're waiting in line for two to three hours, uh, because there, there's so many people, um, who, who are, are trying to get food uh, that, that has got to prompt a rethinking in the mind of the Texas voter. Um, and, and then, and then it's going to be a competition for who can provide those services, that governance and that competence going forward. At least I hope that's what it's going to be about. Um, we'll see. Yeah.
0: Well, let me just uh, wind down by asking you a question uh, that people will uh, be very angry if I don't ask you, which is like, uh, can we expect to, uh, you have any interest in running for governor of Texas?
3: Right now, I'm, I'm super lucky to be doing what I'm doing. I'm working with this organization called Powered by People that's led this effort, uh, for example, to reach out to all these senior citizens across Texas and is going to be working on voter registration and removing the impediments to voting in Texas yeah. for the remainder of, of this year. Um, I'm teaching at Texas State and at the LBJ school at, at UT. So I want to make sure that I'm focused on that, uh, focused uh, on doing what I can in this current crisis. And then down the road can think about whether there is a role for me to play um, in supporting those who are running for office or perhaps seeking office myself. But but for now, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm focused on what's most important and urgent and, and that's this crisis in texas
0: well uh i i appreciate you making the time i know you're a really busy guy right now uh helping the people of texas thank you um as a fellow texan i thank you i've got relatives down there who are um don't have power themselves and I'm, we're hoping for the best for them but um thanks for coming on inside the hive and we hope very much to have you back
3: I, i'd love to do that and thanks for having me on i hope your relatives and all the Texans who are listening to this right now are safe, um, that they've got power by now, they've got water, they're able to feed themselves, um, and and just grateful to everyone who's looking out for one another and taking care of their neighbors. That's, That's the Texan way. Well, thank you very much and Godspeed. Likewise, man. Thanks for doing this.
0: And that is our show this week. I'd like to thank my fabulous guests, Congressman Joe Neguse and Texas Democrat Beto O'Rourke. I'd like to thank my fabulous co-host, Emily Jane Fox. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to Inside the Hive. Go to Apple. Go to Radio.com. Wherever you get your podcasts, hit subscribe. And if you liked what you heard, please leave a review. I'd like to thank our producer, Brett Fuchs, and the good people at Cadence 13. Thanks to our sponsors. Please support them the way they support this podcast.
3: And we will see you next week.